Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Some of you are going, wait a minute, don't worry, we'll get to Mark here in just a moment. Turn to Matthew chapter 8, and as you're doing that, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever been amazed by something? Have you ever seen something, experienced something, and it just, it took your breath away? It was an amazing moment. I think about the first time that I saw the Grand Canyon, which admittedly is just a giant hole in the ground, but it was amazing. Or or the first time you go out and you see the ocean and it just keeps going and there's nothing on the other side that you can see. It's just water. And you go, wow, that's amazing. As a preacher, I do a fair share of weddings. And let me just tell you, one of the best moments in the wedding is when the doors open And the bride appears. Everyone stands. And it's an amazing moment, but not for the reason you think, because all eyes are on the bride. But do you know who I like to watch at that moment? The groom. It is the most fun to watch these big, in many cases, big six foot four guys who look like they may have had an emotion once, maybe 10, 20 years ago. But in that moment, they see the woman that they've said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with for the rest of my life. And no joke, the, I can't tell names because some of you know this person because we have common relationships. But there's this one guy, huge guy, size of a refrigerator in every way. Big old boy. He had had something of a hard life. So he was fairly well tatted up, tough dude. I don't think anyone had ever even seen him crack a smile, let alone cry. But when his soon-to-be wife came in those doors. I look over, and he starts to go, (laughs) he begins to sob. And what's best is they had a common microphone right there because they were going to exchange vows. And so throughout the church, at the most joyful moment of the celebration, all anyone can hear is the wedding march and a grown man sobbing. It was amazing. I'd never seen it before. Here's the thing, as we read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life from the vantage point of a guy named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four different guys, over and over we will hear people say they were amazed at Jesus. But did you know that Jesus, two times in the Gospels, is amazed at people? Two times we're told that Jesus is amazed. There are only two times, and they are radically different situations. So here's the question. I just want to ask you this morning, as we think through this, I want to invite you to consider this question. How am I, how are you, how are we amazing Jesus? So we're going to look at the two times. The first one is in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Look at what it says here. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, which is a a town northwest of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jump down to verse 10. When Jesus heard this, 
Go ahead, jump down to verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was, say this word with me, amazed and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with, notice this now, such great faith. Now, verse 13 finishes the story. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Jesus was amazed at great faith. Now, go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 is where we'll pick up in Mark chapter 6. It says this, Jesus left there and went to his hometown Accompanied by his disciples, when the Sabbath day came, that's Saturday, the Jewish holy day, when Sabbath day came, he began to teach in the synagogue, which would have been the Jewish church building and school and civic center. It was sort of all those things rolled into one. So Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does Miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And notice this. They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And verse 5 says, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why? Verse 6 says, And he was amazed, notice this now, at their lack of faith. I want you to notice two things this morning. There are two ways, there are just two ways to amaze Jesus. One is with great faith, and the other one is with a lack of faith. And I just need to be real candid. What we are doing this Morning in this moment is an incredibly dangerous thing. I don't know if you realize that, but what you are doing right now, this morning, is incredibly, incredibly dangerous because what we are doing here will either lead to greater faith or lack of faith. You say, how is that possible, Josh? Well, let's just sort of walk through the text. In the first situation we come to, notice this, we'll kind of get the context here. This is our map. We've been coming to it a lot. Jesus traveled around in the western side of Galilee, the Hebrew side. On the eastern side is the Decapolis. That's the Gentile side. He goes over there as well. But this was his primary missionary field in the three years that he was interacting with people on earth. He does go further south into Jerusalem. We'll get into that later in Mark. But for now, he's spending most of his time in Galilee. And in Capernaum, he meets a centurion who has great faith. You say, well, okay, let's, let's just sort of unpack this. Who is this guy, this centurion? Well, here's what we know about him. He was a Roman Gentile, which means he was a part of the empire of Rome, the overlords of the Hebrews and so many other people. He had been a part of the invading force that had now occupied Israel and other places throughout the known world. He wasn't just a Roman, he wasn't just a Gentile, meaning not Jewish, he was also a soldier, a centurion, meaning he was head over 100 men. 
sent centurion. He had a hundred men under him. So most likely in a city like Capernaum, which was a decent size, but not massive, it is very possible that he was the head soldier over the entire city. He was a somebody, but he was not liked by anybody. He comes to Jesus, and what does he say to Jesus? He, he comes, he bows down, he says, Jesus, will you heal my servant? He is lame, he is paralyzed, he is, something's wrong, and he's in great distress, because in their day, if you became paralyzed, maybe by stroke or injury, that was all she wrote. There was no coming back from that. And so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, I will heal this man. By the way, side note, aren't you glad that Jesus will respond to the sincere faith of anyone regardless of if you grew up in the church, out of the church, if you are a somebody, a nobody, if people like you or don't like you, Jesus listens. Isn't that good news? And so he says, hey, I will heal this man. So Jesus goes with him. By the way, wouldn't it be great today if you had an issue to go to Jesus, say, Jesus, I got a flat tire. Can you like just, and there's whoop, or, or, you know, my kid is sick. Could you speak? And my kid is not sick. Or could you help with this? Wouldn't it be great? And so Jesus says, well, I'll come with you. And then the centurion demonstrates faith unlike anything Jesus had ever seen. He says, Jesus, 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 (laughs) you are so powerful. You are so capable that you don't have to be physically near my servant to change his circumstances. You don't have to be with him in the flesh for change everything about what he is going through. Isn't it good news to know that although you can't see Jesus in the flesh, he is just as capable right now of dealing with your situation as he was in that moment in time. He is not limited by physical space or time. He is simply waiting to be called upon. And do you know, so he goes to Jesus. By the way, interestingly enough here, this centurion goes to Jesus. Now, the way we go to Jesus today, we call that process of going to Jesus prayer, right? We pray. We talk to God through Jesus. We talk. We are praying. Now, what's interesting is For many people, prayer is the last resort. It's the last thing we do. If all else fails, we pray. Church, we pray as our first response, not our last resort. Prayer is the first thing we do, not the last thing we try. It's not the Hail Mary of football. It is the first thing we do because we believe that God is able. Yesterday, I was at Walmart buying some groceries for my wife. Yes, because I'm that kind of a husband. And it took me about four times as long as it does her because I have no idea where anything is. But as I'm coming out of Walmart, I look over and you know they have the soda pop machines. By the way, do you call it soda or Coke? What what do you guys call it? Coke. We are in the South. It is Coke. Do you want a Sprite Coke, a Coca-Cola Coke, a Dr. Pepper Coke? Because they're all Coke, right? How many of you grew up somewhere else and you're like, "Mm mm-mm, it's not Coke? Anyone? Yeah, we got pop, we got soda, but in the South... Hey, become all things to all people so you can save a few, right? Okay, so here we are. I'm coming out, and they've got the soda machine, the pop machine, the Coke machine. And I remember back a bajillion years ago when they used to have like the Sam's Cola machines right outside. How many of you remember the Sam's Cola machines? 
You could get a Coke, and again, now some of you are going, dude, you are a baby. You could get a Coke for a lot less than this. I know, but this is my story. You could get a Coke for 25 cents. How many of you remember that? You go put your quarter in, 25 cents, get your little can of Coke. Another one, I mean, you're, you're sugared up for the day. And as I was walking out, I was thinking, oh man, I remember we'd, when we'd go and we'd get a Coke with dad, and, and he was always a big spender. Here's your quarter, use it well. And so I remember one day, though, I, I put a quarter in and pushed the button and nothing came out. I, I mean, really, that's just frustrating for a little seven-year-old kid. It's like, really? That's my quarter. That's my life savings. That's everything. So I, I get another quarter. I put another quarter in. Still, not, I go through two dollars of quarters before a maintenance man comes over and says, hey, kid, do you not see the sign? Well, no, I hadn't looked up high enough. It says, out of order. How many of us know That it doesn't matter how much you put into a machine that is out of order, it's not going to fix what's broken. How many of us, you can kick the machine, you can rock the machine, you can do all this stuff, but if it's out of order, it just won't work. Many people, until they put God in the proper order, it doesn't matter how much you invest in your life, it doesn't matter how much you do in your life, it doesn't matter how mad you get or how frustrated or you kick or scream, until you put God in his proper order, your life will always be out of order. And so he comes to the only one who can fix everything. And he demonstrates this great faith. He says, Jesus, with but a word, you can heal my servant. You say, well, so, so what is faith, Josh? What, does, what is great faith? Well, it's very simply what this man did. Great faith is simply taking Jesus at his word. Great faith or any kind of faith is simply saying, Jesus, I believe what you have said is true. And not only do I believe it intellectually, I will live it out physically and in the ways that I operate, great faith is simply taking Jesus at his word. Jesus, with but a word, I trust your word. How do you know what God's word is if you do not read his word? And Jesus goes, man, I have never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And it's coming from a Gentile, someone who doesn't know me, someone who didn't grow up with me, someone who hasn't been around me. This is amazing. And here's the incredible thing. Faith, we know, has great power, doesn't it? In this story, the man's servant is healed from afar immediately and thoroughly. So you got a story of great faith, but then you have the story of lack of faith. Did you know, church, that lack of faith is just as powerful as great faith? Do you notice that from the story? Jesus shows up to his own hometown, and let's just kind of play the story out. He goes back to where he grew up. It wasn't a big town. It was this town of Nazareth. I was talking to Leonard before service. Leonard has been to Nazareth, and he said, it's a know-nothing town. Built on the side of a hill. In fact, in another gospel, we're told that when his town folk, when the people heard Jesus proclaiming himself Messiah, they got so mad that they took him up to the precipice, to the edge of the cliff to throw him off. And so it's a little bitty town on the edge of a hill. It's, it's where you leave. It's not where you go back. Jesus goes back to Nazareth, a place populated by no more than probably about 150, 200 people. Quick question. How many of you grew up in a small town where everyone knows everyone's business? Anyone in here grew up in a town like that? I mean, how many of you remember getting in trouble at school 
and racing home trying to intercept the phone call because you know if mom hears it from the school, you're, you're going to get beaten twice. Anyone in here? Uh, you, me either. So you, you just, where everyone knows your business. Jesus goes back. And at first, they're so impressed with him. They're like, wow, how does he know all this stuff? He, he wasn't real educated. He didn't go through the great training of the great rabbis. I mean, how does he know this? And then we're told in verse 3 that they took offense at Jesus. That word offense in Greek is the word scandalon, from which we get our word scandal. They were, it was a scandal. They were scandalized. They were offended at him. And you can see the reasons why. Notice all the things they say to Jesus. They say, well, isn't this just the carpenter? Now listen, as a guy who can't put two pieces of wood together without nailing my thumbs to the wood, I'm impressed with anyone who has that kind of skill. But the carpenter? The word there is the word tecton. It means someone who may work with stone. Sometimes we would. But Jesus was basically your, in their day, sort of your, your average blue-collar kind of guy. He, he may have done wood. He may have worked in construction with stone. He was just a tough guy. He was a strong guy. He was not the guy who went to a great school. He didn't go to the Ivy League. He did not receive the great education. And the people are going, he's a nobody. Where does he get off telling us? anything. And in fact, they then say, hey, isn't this the boy who grew up with, with well, we know his brothers, don't we? Yeah, I mean, you got, you got Simon, you got Judas, you, you got all of his family, you got his sisters. By the way, Jesus did have brothers and sisters from his mom and his earthly father, Joseph. And we know where he grew up. It's like, you know, this is the kid who, who played on my son's basketball team. He was the point guard. He had just a divine jump shot. Grunch. You'll get that later. And they say, we saw him grow up. And so what is so special about him? And then, in fact, did you hear the real, real, real scathing statement they make in verse 3? Isn't this the son of Mary? You understand in a culture that all the kids are always named after their father. It would be Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. You would not have Jesus bar Mary. Everyone in their culture followed through their father's name. And so when they say, isn't this the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, what are they implying, church? We don't know who his daddy really is. He's a nobody. Do you want to know what the biggest difference between the centurion and the folks in Nazareth were? This is why what we're doing right now is so dangerous. And, and some of you, you are, you are leaning in and you're going to grow in some beautiful ways. Others are not. And this is going to just demonstrate it even more. And I'm not trying to be harsh, but you just need to understand what we're doing right now is dangerous. Because the problem, the difference between the centurion and his hometown crowd was that the hometown crowd had become so familiar with Jesus that they were no longer able to be surprised or impressed or changed by Jesus. How many of you remember the first time that you got a smartphone? Anyone in here remember the first time you got a smartphone? Can I see some hands this morning? How many? Okay, do you remember the first time that you ever sent a text message? I, mean, I remember, I, now, my smartphone used to have all these buttons on it. 
And, and I remember it took me still about 10 minutes to like send three words because I was really terrible at it. But I would do it and I was so impressed. I'd hit send and it was like magic. I'm, I'm like, from my phone, I'm sending to someone else. And then they'd send something back with me and they would use the colons and the semicircle or whatever that is or the parentheses like a smiley face. I'm like, oh, the first emoji. This is outstanding. This is so great. I was so impressed. But then now... If you send a text message and it takes more than three seconds to get through, what happens? Piece of junk. Garbagey little thing. Why? Why? Instead of realizing that, wait a minute, maybe we should give it a moment for the words to go magically into outer space and back down. It's incredible. Or how many of you have been married more than a couple days? Anyone in here married for more than a couple days? I love watching newlyweds. I mean, it is, and I always say this, I'll say, hey, look, I'm so glad you are so in love. There will be days that you're not really that in love with each other. And I love watching the guy. He's like, oh, no, boo. Well, always, mm, yeah, everything's good, sweetie pie. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And we all go, (laughs) what happens? Marriage happens. You get... Life and some miles behind you and your spouse does not become any less amazing than the moment you met your spouse. You've just become familiar with your spouse. And you miss the beauty of it. Or or what about this? Some of you know this, that most car wrecks happen when you're close to home. Have you noticed this? In fact, according to all the different studies out there, somewhere between 52 and 69% of all automobile accidents happen within five miles of your home. And they have a reason for this. Do you want to know the reason for this? They have a technical word for this. They call it the inattention blindness. They say it's inattention blindness. In fact, let's just say this together on the count of three, inattention blindness. You ready? One, two, three, inattention blindness. Here's what it is. You've become so familiar with your drive home, you stop paying attention to what is around you. How many of you have driven home and you get home and then you go, wait, how did I get here? You, You don't remember the turns. It's because muscle memory has taken over and you zone out. You're in a comfort zone and you are not paying attention. And so most accidents happen because of inattention blindness. How many of us know That because we are familiar with Jesus, it is easy to have inattention blindness with him. Oh, I I already know that story. I've already heard that. I've already seen this. I hope it doesn't go long today. Got to beat the others to to the restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point, good point. Wonder how the masters are doing now. Could he post another score on the screen? What we're doing is dangerous here, family, because for some in this room, you are leaning in and you're saying, I have more to learn. I have more to experience. I want to know Jesus. He is my everything. And if I but get close to him, things will change. And then there are others who say, yeah, he's a nice guy. But I already heard those stories. I remember not too long ago, conversation with a friend and we started dealing with some things and and the most frustrating part of the conversation was as 
as we were talking through some of the details, some of the challenges, any solution that was presented, this guy shot down because he was, oh yeah, yeah, I've already heard that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've, I've already been told about that. I've already seen that. And then the question finally came up, yes, but have you done any of those things? The familiarity had led to a crash. Here's what you need to know this morning, family. Go ahead and put the slide up, please, Leonard. Familiarity with Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. Familiarity, knowing about him, is not the same thing as trusting him, as leaning into everything. And so here's the big question. How are we going to end this morning is how do you just grow your faith? I want to give you a couple quick things real fast, and we're going to call it a morning. Real quickly, here it is. If you want to grow in your faith, because some of you this morning, you're going, I I don't know that I have any faith. That's okay. Do you remember what Jesus said? Faith the size of a... Of a, of a mustard seed can move mountains. So, so if you don't have faith or big faith, that's okay. Start today. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, do what the centurion did. Faith is taking Jesus at his word. Do what he has told you to do. Begin to practice what you have heard him preach. Because here's the reality. Everyone has faith in something. You know this, right? I'll give you one more story and then close it out here. Do you, years and years ago when I was, I think, about 9, 10 years old, two of my uh, cousins, we were the only three boy cousins around the same age, my cousin Dave, my cousin Matthew, and myself, we, we had watched this, this show about hang gliders. And we thought, man, that looks amazing. And we started talking about how cool it would be to be able to have a hang glider and to be able to, like, fly. And, and then we realized, well, you know, you need a big place to jump off of for a hang glider to, to get some wind. And, and we realized that at my grandma's backyard, where we all just happened to be, she had a parking space with a 15-foot drop. And we thought, oh, this is perfect. It's providence. God has given us this great space so we can practice the art of flying and so we decided we would, we'd collect our money, and we all, we got our money together, we begged our parents, we promised to do chores or whatever, and so they took us to the local hardware store, and we thought, all we need to fly, we need to build a hang glider. And so I remember we went, and we bought, we didn't realize what materials you actually need, so we bought like blankets, like thick, you know, quilt cover blankets, we're like, this will be awesome, we'll just stretch that bad boy thick, and it's going to soar, it'll be great. And then we thought, okay, what do we use to hold it out, what are the pieces, we're like, oh, you need two-by-fours. I mean, come on. It's sturdy. It'll hold together. So we went and we bought two-by-fours. We got a couple one-by-ones. We thought, eh, probably won't use it. And we got blankets. And then we said, well, how do we hold it all together? And, and we thought, well, glue's not strong enough. I know. We got some of these big old massive construction nails. And we started, like, hammering this bad boy. We built out the world's jankiest hang glider you have ever seen. But we were stoked about it. And so we get it and we pick it up and it's like, oh, that's a little heavy. I'm sure it'll fly. But one of us has to try it to find out, don't we? And I remember we were, we were discussing what we should do and David's the oldest, I was middle, and Matthew's youngest. So as we're talking, we, David and I both just sort of pause and then we look over at Matthew and we said, Matthew, we believe in you. Would you take our flight as the inaugural flight? Would you do this? So we start to butter them up. You're like, oh, you're the right size for it. I mean, you're, and you're so tough. And if you fall, you'll be great. You'll sort of just bounce like rubber. He's like, I will? Yes, you will. We went and we got his peewee 
football helmet and pads. Put those on him. And then I remember, as we were about to, like, send him off the edge, we said, well, we should probably pray over Matthew just in case this doesn't work. (laughs) And so I remember we we circle around Matthew. We lay hands on the glider and hands on Matthew. And it's like, dear Lord. But we hadn't hit puberty, so it was like, dear Lord. And we would say, you know... Please don't let Matthew die because then his mom would be really mad at us and that'd be bad for everybody. But help him to land safely. It's going to be awesome. Amen. And we had faith that he was going to fly. And it was that moment like in Chariots of Fire where the music starts. Dun, 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 dun. And he goes. He, he takes little, little feet, little legs, going, going as fast as he can. He runs, he runs, he runs. And he goes off the edge and it was a picture-perfect moment. Because for a split second, he paused in midair. <laughs> but then like the coyote not catching the roadrunner, he just goes, Beow! and we hear the crash. What I didn't tell you is it drops 15 feet and then the yard slopes precipitously down further. And so he starts to roll head over heels with the glider. All we hear is splintering wood and we come down and we have to unroll this thing to get Matthew out of it. And we're like, Matt, are you okay? Are, are, are you, can you? And he goes, I flew! <laughs> I go, yeah. He had faith. We had Faith he could fly, but how many of us know that faith in something weak does not make that weak thing strong? It is not the strength of your faith that determines what happens. It is the strength of the one in whom you have faith that matters. If you're falling off a cliff and you see a branch and you reach out for it, you may not have great faith that it'll hold you, but your faith in that moment is less important than the strength of the branch. All you are required to do is reach out and grab hold of it. This is what the centurion did. He said, if I can but reach out to Jesus, I believe that he can change what is going on. Church, here's the thing. If you want to grow in your faith, you simply begin to reach out to Jesus. You reach out to Jesus. Say, how do I do that? Well, here's the way. When he tells you to do something and you're scared to do it, say, Jesus, I'm scared, but I'll do it. I trust you. When he calls you to invite that friend he puts a name on your mind, a person next to you, and you say, I, I don't know what to do. I, I, I'm nervous. I'm scared. He goes, just trust me. Would you, would you just hold on to me and hand out the card? When Jesus calls you to begin giving, they say, I'm scared. I don't know how to do this. Money is tight. He says, I gave you all you have. Do you not trust that I can give you what you need? Will you reach out and trust him? Because you have faith in something. 